Hey, it's Nikki, the producer of Ecolution. Each week, Ecolution talks about the environment and climate change in ways that we hope kids can understand. But I wanted to flag something before today's episode. It's all about Antarctica and changes that are happening in the oceans around it. And it's a little troubling. This is an important story, which is why we've chosen to cover it. And we've done it as clearly as possible, so as our younger listeners can be as well informed as everyone else. Thanks a lot. And without further ado, here's the new season of Ecolution. Hi all, and welcome back to... Drumroll, please. It's been a few months since we last spoke, and in that time I've done my junior cert mock exams. And let me tell you, state exams are one of the best ways I've found to stare into the void, contemplate our future, and realise that we've got to do something. And no, I don't mean just study more. This is my second series presenting Ecolution. Last year we started with the message that change was possible. Not just possible, but inevitable. And that's what today's episode is all about. A change that is happening whether we like it or not. We hear news every day. I'm not saying you turn on the radio or watch the news on TV. It could be on TikTok or Twitter. It might be something as small as your brother winning a football match or as big as a war breaking out in another country. But news changes fast and what might be in the headlines one day can be gone the next. And as this relates to the climate crisis, that can be a problem. Well, today's guest made headlines a few weeks ago when his team's research about our oceans was published. My name is Matthew England. I'm a professor of climate physics and oceanography at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. So an oceanographer studies the oceans, but not just the biology of the oceans. A lot of people hear that I'm a marine scientist or an oceanographer, and they imagine I know all about fish, and I know very little about fish. My branch of oceanography is known as physical oceanography, which is about the physics of the ocean. So the temperatures, the ocean currents, the waves and the tides, all the ways that the ocean moves and when it moves, what it does to stuff. So what it does to the temperature, what it does to nutrients and how it affects those fish. And maybe the best way to explain it is that I'm like a weather person, but I'm a weather person of the ocean. So I study the weather of the oceans, the circulation, the currents, the tides, how they're behaving and what they're doing to our environment. Interesting. Well, like in series past, Ecolution enlists the help of a brain trust. Kids like you who want to engage with stories about our environment. And this year we're going to speak a lot with children who are part of the Irish School Sustainability Network. And Grace is one of those people. How do you think the oceans work, Grace? This is how I think the tide works. The moon's gravity pulses the waves. So when the moon comes up and pulses the waves get stronger, so the tide comes up because the gravity of the moon. That's definitely one factor. The tug of war between the sun and the moon impact hugely. But Matt can tell us more. So the way that water moves around the planet is via these forces. So um, anything we, we sort of see on our world, if it's moving in some way, whether it's a wind in the atmosphere or an ocean current, or even a car driving down the street or a ball being thrown through the sky, all of these things that are moving are just subjected to forces and they're moving because some force has driven that flow to occur. And so there are three main driving forces for the ocean circulation. One is the fact that we've got these tides, so that's not sort of part of my work to look at the sun and the moon pulling the water in different directions. But the other two big forces that really motivate my work are the winds. So when the wind blows over the ocean, it pushes water around. It actually 
drags the surface of the ocean with it. And the other one is the density effects. And that's a big part of the study we did, which we'll talk about later. Density effects is basically when you have any fluid, whether it's water or air, that fluid moves as a function of its density. So if anybody you know, fills a, a cup of water up and then puts any oil on the surface, you'll see that that oil floats at the surface and it floats at the surface of that cup of water because it's much less dense. And in the oceans, the water that we have over the surface of the ocean is both salty and it has a certain temperature. And both of those effects, saltiness and its temperature set the density. And that density of the seawater then determines whether it sinks or floats. And that circulation is at the core of my field of research, how the, the density of the water drives the circulation. So it's a very fascinating field of science actually to pull apart all of the movement and the dynamics and, and why the oceans flow the way they do. And it's basically this complex interplay of forces. This planet is totally amazing. It sometimes seems like a huge cosmic accident that our planet is able to sustain life at all. If you think about our Earth, it's, it's a giant rock. But on that rock, we're really, really lucky to have these two fluids, ocean covering 75% of the surface of our planet. And there's a whole lot of benefits to that. It's not just because the oceans provide us with marine life and a source of food and, and nutrients and so on, but it's also because the oceans are tremendously benevolent to our climate. And then on top of the ocean at the surface, we've got this atmosphere and that also helps sustain life on Earth. We wouldn't have life on Earth without an atmosphere. Our planet has these amazing fluids, liquid and gas that surround the rock that we're living on. And you know, basically um, off, off in space is the sun giving us all the energy that we need. Matt and other oceanographers study the sea and our oceans are doing an awful lot of work for this planet. In terms of our climate system, what the oceans provide is a massive reservoir of energy storage. And so when we make the planet warmer through greenhouse gases, the oceans are actually absorbing over 90% of that heat. And that's good because we don't want the heat to stay all in the atmosphere, which is where we live, where we experience heat waves and drought and flooding rains and so on. The fact that the oceans take up the heat for us is good. It moderates the amount of climate change we would otherwise have, but unfortunately, it doesn't come free of charge. And what I mean by that is that ocean heat uptake that's occurring, it comes with things like sea levels rising. It melts the polar ice caps that leads to more sea level with added meltwater. It can intensify tropical cyclones. We see corals being bleached. Marine ecosystems are being pushed to the edge because the normal temperatures that marine life are used to is changing. So there's a migration poleward. Species are having to find better temperatures effectively. And the push that's occurring in terms of ocean temperatures is obviously changing all these things. And each of those things that I mentioned, they're bad things. Sea levels rising is bad for our coastlines. Ice melting can change ocean currents further. We can get intensified tropical cyclones. We, we don't expect to get more of them, but when we get the tropical cyclones, they're expected to be stronger because of that extra ocean energy. And so we have a, an amazing situation where the oceans are slowing climate change, but they're not really slowing the impacts because the impacts come back via raising sea levels, changing the ecosystems, intensifying heavy rainfall events and these sorts of things. So it's the false comfort to kind of think the oceans are slowing climate change because really they're just changing the way climate change occurs. The part of rock that Matt investigated most in his research 
is an area that's currently being seriously affected by this change in our climate. Far south of Ireland, the southern or Antarctic Ocean, and yet he's never set foot on its icy coastland. When you study a part of the Earth's climate system like Antarctica, it just feels wrong that I haven't been there. But I feel like I have because I've been on a research vessel that's got right to the margin. I can see the ice shelves and the ice sheets behind there. It would have been a privilege to walk around. But in a way, I also have so much respect for that continent. It's such a harsh and inhospitable environment. I feel like it's almost right as well that I stay there and marvel at its size and, and, and what it does to our climate system. It stores a whole lot of frozen water. 50 meters of sea level is locked up in the ice sheets. And I almost want to respect its pristine environment. Having said that, it's incredibly important for researchers to get onto those glaciers and understand how they're moving. We asked our brain trust what they knew about Antarctica. Well, Antarctica, first of all, is cold. Very cold. I think that Antarctica is a continent on the South Pole and has no independent countries. It is the most southern continent and the coldest continent. Expeditions to the South Pole have lost men to frostbite and hypothermia. Penguins live there and other life forms we do not know. Antarctica is cold, full of ice and water. You could even barely survive if you were there. If I was in Antarctica, I think it would be like all white, but pretty interesting because all the different animals there and you could look at all the different ice cubes, like are they big or small or anything like that, but it could be dangerous too. The South Pole is also potential of getting very windy and along with that comes, you guessed it, snowstorms. First off, you're dying of hypothermia. This cold barren land is definitely not capable of holding refuge to humans. Animals that live there though, haven't evolved to the max to find ways to thrive. Many whales have extra thick layers of blubber and penguins huddle together to keep warm. Antarctica covers an area of about 14 million square kilometers. It's the fifth largest continent and 40% larger than the whole of Europe combined. It's the home of the South Pole and also where a vast amount of the world's water is stored in the form of ice. Despite its scale, Antarctica is a place that has virtually no full-time human population. I discovered in my research that, to date, only 11 babies have actually been born on the continent. Not that they live there now. At different points in the year, there are between 4 and 5,000 people stationed on the landmass, almost all of whom are scientists or support staff, researching the icy desert. But why is the ice contained there so important? I think the ice in Antarctica is important because it's home to animals. Antarctica's continent is being melted by global warming. I think the ice is important because the sea levels don't rise and so that the animals have land to stand on until it's done. It also keeps our world cooler. The ice melts, the water levels in the ocean and rises and it may flood countries and that means no food or plants. And if we don't mind and take care of it, there's a fairly big continent gone out of the window. Well, Matt, Dr. Adele Morrison and the team behind a new paper published this month in Nature would agree that this ice is incredibly important. Yet their findings on the sea have shown trouble is already well underway. Where to start? Um, the best way to start is to come back to the deep ocean. So in our oceans, they, they, they cover the globe, but they also go right down to about five kilometers depth. There are some trenches that get down to 10 kilometers depth, but they're very narrow trenches that don't occur over much of the global expanse of the oceans. But if you look at a map of the world and look at the ocean that covers the surface of the earth, most of that ocean is about five kilometers depth away from the continental margin. 
and that's a very deep slab of ocean all of the water deeper than about three kilometers so that very bottom most two kilometers of ocean that water it's quite remarkable but it, it has its origin around antarctica if you dive down to that ocean and you measure the temperature the saltiness the oxygen the nutrients all of those properties we can trace that back to the antarctic margin and so why does that occur it occurs because Around Antarctica, you have icy cold waters. Cold water is extra dense, but it's also very salty. Every single winter, when sea ice is formed, it actually extracts fresh water. So if you're ever stuck on a boat like Shackleton was around Antarctica with no drinking water left on the research vessel, they could take sea ice out of the ocean and melt it and drink that water. It kept them alive. So when sea ice is formed, it, it takes fresh water out of the ocean leaves salt behind and that water is then extra dense because it's salty and cold it sinks to the ocean abyss and when it does that it takes with it oxygen and it recycles nutrients back to the surface okay so it's clear that the overturning of the water is vital to multiple parts of our planet but that crucial overturning is in crisis why is that important one analogy that i like to mention with this work is to talk about a fish tank if you've got a fish tank and you have no movement of that water it's totally stagnant the fish will become very unhealthy they'll lack oxygen it will become not supportive to the marine life if you instigate a circulation in that better still pumping oxygen through the through the pump and having the water move about in the fish tank it creates a healthy marine environment and our global ocean system is not unlike that fish tank scenario we want the overturning of these waters to occur we want this oxygen-rich water to be pushed into the seafloor for it to recirculate back to the surface. It brings with it all of the nutrients that sink to the seafloor, then get brought back to the surface, and we have a healthy marine environment. We've got another overturning circulation in the North Atlantic. A lot of listeners across Europe and the UK will have heard of the North Atlantic overturning circulation. It was made famous in the film The Day After Tomorrow. It was a, it was a sci-fi film, but that overturning is also very important. Between these two water masses, in the North Atlantic and around Antarctica, they are the drivers of all of the ocean overturning deeper than about 1.5 kilometers. So the lower two thirds of the ocean need those two overturning cells to be vigorous and bringing the water back up to the sea surface. Unfortunately, under climate change, we're disrupting that system. The pump that keeps the water in our oceans healthy and circulating is breaking down. And this is a direct result of human industry. The paper was published in Nature and was reported on due to what it said, but scientific papers can often pass us by. Because sometimes these papers get very complex, but the reason why it's an easy thing to explain from a sort of scientific perspective is that global warming is melting ice, as you said. You know, NASA has wonderful videos online where you can track the ice melt around Antarctica and over Greenland. So we're adding this meltwater. That's not unlike my analogy about the oil being added to a glass of water. Meltwater is fresh, it's got no salinity to it whatsoever, that meltwater does not sink. It sits at the surface of the ocean and it, it can't sink because its salinity is near zero. Salty water has about 3.5% salt in there. It's so much denser because of that salinity. So adding meltwater just makes the water too buoyant to sink. And the moment you stop sinking that water, that whole description I gave of this overturning of water through the very bottom layers of the ocean coming back to the surface, we lose that and we stagnate the bottom two or three kilometers of the ocean. 
very quickly, like one of the things that's surprising about our work is that as we added meltwater at the projected rate that we're expecting for the next few decades, the slowdown wasn't 3% of that overturning. It was actually up to 40%. And that's one of the things that I think surprised us and, and many people that the slowdown could occur so quickly. But if you think about the basic physics of it, if you're adding meltwater, this fresh water that has no salinity to the surface of the ocean, that's a very quick effect. You get the waters becoming buoyant straight away, and that's leading to this slowdown that occurred a lot faster than I would like to think the oceans would respond because, you know, these overturning circulations have been there right through the last 10,000 years. They've been keeping our oceans overturning and a relatively stable climate and a, a good return to the surface of these nutrients. If we, if we slow it down by 40% over the next 30 years, that's a big change to how the marine circulation works and how our nutrients come back up to the surface. These findings are worrying, and I know the approach we'd all like to take is, this is a problem and here is a solution. But in the case of a process that's already underway, that solution isn't really available. You know, this 40% slowdown over the next three decades, it's probably hard for us to avoid that. What we can avoid is the full shutdown. The reason why I say the 40% is hard to avoid at this stage is because we know the amount of water that's going to the ocean right now. We know that What's going in there now is already slowing down the overturning. We can see the ocean temperatures in the abyss already warming. So it's not like we've discovered a change that maybe is going to occur. All the evidence we have is that we're some way through that, maybe already 10, 15% into that 40% slowdown from looking at ocean temperatures. Now, when that occurs, the different effects I've been talking about play out on different timescales. The one that we didn't talk about yet that's quite quick is this feedback to further warming on the shelf. And that's the biggest thing that concerns me because when you slow the overturning down, you're no longer getting this icy cold water down to the bottom of the shelf and then off the shelf into the ocean abyss. And when you stop that icy cold water sinking, you're then seeing warming on the shelf, which is the very region where the ice is melting. So one of my biggest concerns is that there's a feedback loop to further ice melt when we get that localized warming. That's the bad news story. That's the bit that's really quick to respond. It actually happens at the same time as the slowdown. So it's not like we need to wait decades to see that warming. As the ocean circulation slows down, that water, especially in the West Antarctic sector, warms up. Hmm. So while greenhouse gases continue to warm the planet, the meltwater from the Antarctic will increase. This fresh water won't act the way it needs to, to help push the circulation within our oceans. And the more melting that occurs, the quicker the slowdown. The nutrient resupply to the surface, fortunately, is a much longer timescale. That whole circulation loop is really multi-century. We know that the circulation does bring nutrients back to the surface, but there's been a few people who've looked at the scenario, what happens if this slows down? How will it affect nutrients? And most of the really bad impacts of that nutrient upwelling disappearing don't play out till the end of this century and so sort of you know 50 years 80 years from now that impact on the nutrient upwelling will be felt but as i keep saying whenever i give these talks about the science that's not long to go you know somebody born today will be my age you know 50 years from now i'm 56 so um somebody born today it's not not long into the future that they'll be seeing these changes so it's it's no real cause for complacency to sort of go well it's going to be 50 years from now that's not far away on the scale of intergenerational change i'll be 65 in 50 years time and i'll admit that does sound old but in the life of our planet it's really not a long time this report was in the news for a week 
How many of you have heard about it before this episode of Ecolution? But then, outside of climate circles, it hasn't remained on the news agenda. Another war breaks out and understandably the focus shifts. Another extreme weather event needs a response. It's very hard to tell the story of our climate, as it's one that plays out over a very long period of time. But the findings made by Matt and his colleagues, along with lots of other scientists around the world, relate to news that will continue to change and evolve throughout all of our lives and beyond. Our planet is in a state of great change due to human activities, and yet knowing about it and continuing to talk about it can allow us to adapt to this changing world. One of the things I hope that comes from this science, the science is not aimed to scare people, especially not younger generation of kids coming through schools and so on. That's really where we want the action to come from is from businesses, governments, communities, looking at how how we create energy, getting away from burning fossil fuels, really leaving fossil fuels in the ground. That's the best way to put it. And the positive is that a lot of the technologies, solar cells have been around since the 70s. Wind technology, I mean, there have been windmills in many nations around Europe for centuries and centuries, getting energy out of geothermal and there's tidal energy. There's a whole lot of sources of energy at our fingertips. And so the good news is that these technologies are around, they're available, they're advanced as well. We've got enough progress in in their production. I look at my country, I'm from Australia, where we're exporting coal around the world. This will be seen, it should be seen already as an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. We're using fossil fuels to power these big vessels to ship coal around for it to be burned elsewhere. And I'm continually talking to my government about that. They can't just talk about local emissions. When we put this carbon into the atmosphere, it's mixed globally. One country stopping its emissions but sending its coal somewhere else to be burnt is not going to solve this problem. The positive is in solving it, we can embrace new technologies. The solutions won't ruin our way of life quite the opposite. They, they make for cleaner air a new economy, so new jobs and new innovation. And anybody who, who's studying at the moment, whether they're early primary school right through to the end of their years of high school, a lot of the, the core subjects that you study at school underpin that transition we need to make to a low carbon economy. So it's really important to emphasize that good news end to the story where getting us out of this problem actually will create a whole lot of wonderful things like a new economy, cleaner air, a better environment, and so on. The cost of inaction and the cost of these changes to our our climate system far exceed. There's been several reports on this where they go through and they detail all of the economics of doing nothing versus doing something. And it ranges from, for some nations, it's a five-fold benefit. So five times better economy by addressing climate change. Other nations like Australia, it's more like 20-fold. So every nation has a different stake in this, but no nation is going to avoid the impacts of climate change. And so the good news is it's not like we can have some nations avoiding any action. You know, everybody gets impacted, so it needs a global solution. But every nation stands to benefit from from stopping this rate of pace of climate change. So I'll return to change. Last year, we said change was possible. Today, we're talking about a change we wish wasn't happening that's already underway. But both of these things require countries to respond. Virtual nations of the world have pledged to get to net zero by 2050. That would avoid the worst impacts of climate change. But to get there, that's a whole lot of re-engineering we need to do. And so what the University's Climate Alliance is about is sharing that knowledge, sharing those experiences about getting to net zero. How do you do it? How do you do it in the most efficient way? Like anything in life, you can go about a goal, in this case, getting to net zero in a whole number of ways. It's very important that we do it 
in a way that's that's swift, that's effective, that's long lasting. Because you know we just can't wait to 2045 and then suddenly go, okay, gee, we've got to get this done in the next five years. The really heavy lifting, uh, the sooner it starts, the better. And, and it makes the path to net zero much more cost-effective, much more viable, and actually something that lasts longer term. The research being done across our planet by scientists, like Matt, is so important, but it can be hard to deal with the response or a lack of response to their findings. We're excited as scientists to study the natural world, and we even get excited when we make a discovery because it feels important to make that discovery. But it has been disheartening to see the science play out and to see a disconnect between those scientific discoveries and the action on climate change. Already 50 years ago, one of the Nobel Prize-winning physicists, Uki Manabe, had the first projections of climate change out in the 1960s. And I could show you a diagram that shows the pattern of that warming that Suki discovered that, that was part of his Nobel Prize. And that pattern of warming has played out, more warming over the Arctic, more warming over land and the oceans. It was a fingerprint of change predicted in the 60s, and it's played out pretty much exactly that magnitude, about a degree Celsius warming up to today, was what he predicted. And then it's the pattern, such a clear fingerprint of change. It's almost chilling to see it because that's a long time ago. And unfortunately, the rate of change of getting off this fossil fuel dependency hasn't kept pace with that. There's been some movement toward that reduction of fossil fuels. But you know, some countries are just really dragging the chain, like Australia, like the US, over the last couple of decades. This drag, the lack of urgency in our governments to act, feels like it should be a thing of the past. But sometimes, like in Australia, our changing climate can force change. So the political climate in Australia, it's almost like a frontline nation for the impacts of climate change. So we're at the front line in terms of the horrible bushfires that everybody would have seen a couple of years ago. They were absolutely catastrophic. Then we had a couple of years of intense flooding rains that were equally catastrophic. I mean, we're really a continent at the edge of climate before we started to change the climate system. The recent increase in greenhouse gases has, has pushed us really over the edge. But the good news is that the electorate has responded at the last federal election. Climate was a big topic and there was about five or six key seats that used to be held by the Conservative Party there who were opposed to climate action. And those seats actually went across to either the Greens or to independents, whose main policy issue was to say they would support addressing climate change. It was confronting to see in some ways because it was actually the seats, those regions that were on the riverbanks that got flooded, the electorates that were burnt down by the bushfires, those electorates that saw those impacts were the very electorates where the biggest changes occurred. And the reason I say that's confronting is that I don't want to wait till every bit of planet Earth sees a disastrous climatic change event, whether it's the Hurricane Katrina that hit Florida, heat waves. And so, I mean, I don't want it to be the situation where we need to see these disasters play out before people get it, because the science has been around for the last 40 or 50 years, and Australia has been terribly slow at addressing climate change. But the good news for your listeners is that that's changed. You know, no credible government would go to an election without a very strong policy on climate action. It's clear that something needs to be done. We're so grateful to Matt England for speaking with us. The news he brings is hard to hear, but as he said, once we become aware of a problem, it allows us to respond. Thanks also to this week's Brain Trust, fifth class from Clarehan National School in Tipperary. They are members of the Irish School Sustainability Network, and we hope we'll work with lots more kids like them throughout this season.
If you or your class would like to be part of Ecolution, we'd love to hear from you. Email junior at rte.ie. Thanks for listening to the first episode back. This series, we're going to feature stories of hope as well as the harder news. The climate crisis requires resilience from us all, and Matt is no different. I wonder where he gets it from. I actually get it from the ocean. I, I jump into the ocean every single day of my life and have done since the day I was 19 or so. So it's been 37 years. I'm here at Cambridge. I can't go there today, but, but every single day I possibly can. I, I get in the ocean. I swim long distance swimming and it, it's an incredible experience. It gives so much back to me. I never sort of planned it this way that I sort of like, oh, I love the ocean. Therefore, I'm going to go study them for my career. I mean, it was part of what drew me into the topic. But, you know, when I look back now and think about how much the oceans have given me personally in terms of resilience that mental well-being it's it it is really important to have that to have something that keeps you feeling well and that's certainly been a big part of my life there's all these stories you know lots of nice narratives about how the oceans are intrinsic to life on earth and and to us as individuals and i've got to say i I feel that when i jump in go underwater and it's an incredible feeling Ecolution is produced by Nikki Coughlin and presented by me, Evie Kenny. We'd really appreciate if you could like, follow and review Ecolution wherever you get it. It really helps get the word out and as we said today, the more people that know about the problems our environment faces, the more people that can help in solving those problems. If you enjoyed this podcast, RTE Junior has tons of podcasts for kids of all ages. Simply search for RTE Junior Radio and have a listen.